really good to be together this morning. Um, as we were singing that second song, um, His Mercy is More, I was just thinking about the, the reality of uh, a new morning, uh, the sun coming up every day, and uh, the, the fresh mercies of God to us every single day. And uh, gathering together on Sundays is another expression of that mercy. Um, as we sing together, as we sit under God's word together, as we see one another and smile and say hi, and we're reminded that there are other people who believe the same thing that I do, that are worshiping the same God that I do, that's a, an embodying of God's mercy to us. Um, it's a very real expression of his mercy. And you, you just can't get that at home with your Bible by yourself Sunday after Sunday. It's something that, that requires being together and worshiping him uh, together. And so this is a gift of mercy, the fact that we're able to be here together this morning. Uh, and it's a fresh reminder of the, the grace and goodness of God to us. Um, so uh, I'm glad to be with you all this morning. Glad we're able to open God's word uh, to John 15. Uh, each person in here this morning has a you have a variety of types of relationships in your life. You may not often think about this, but there are, there are different ways that you relate to people. You have friends. Some of you have children, grandchildren. You have, some of you have a spouse. You have coworkers. You have neighbors. If I handed you a list of the people that you know, you could write what sort of relationship it is you have with those people next to their name. This person's my neighbor, this person's my, my son, my daughter, whatever it may be. And it's important for you that even if you don't consciously think about it, that you understand what type of relationship you have with those people because the type of relationship you have with them will determine how you act toward them, how you relate to them. There was a point in my relationship with Bethany in the year 2003, quite a while ago, where we had a define the relationship talk. We are sitting in a restaurant in Greenville, and we'd been talking on the phone a lot more and spending more time together, and we had a define the relationship talk where we moved from being just friends to a dating relationship, and then a few months after that, our relationship moved again to being engaged and then ultimately to being married. That's what happens in those sort of relationships. And it's important that you understand that with all the relationships that you have. It would be weird and uncomfortable if you treated a coworker like they were your child, if you related to them in the same way you relate to your children. Now, in our study of the Gospel of John, we're reading about Jesus' last night with his disciples before he's crucified. John chapter 13, all the way through John chapter 17, all takes place on this one night in a, in a few hours of his life, the night before he's crucified. And as we've seen, he's going away from them and he's explaining that his departure to them, he's making that clear to them, and their relationship with him will fundamentally change. I mean, there's no way around it. He's been physically with them. They've been walking with him down dusty roads, watching him perform miracles, and now that's not going to happen anymore. It's going to change. How is it going to change? Well, he's promised them several gifts that he's going to give them in his departure, and he said, I'm going to enable you to obey after, you're, after I'm gone. 
But now, in chapter 15, with all of this preparation in 13 and 14, talking about going away, he's going to enable their obedience, all of that, now he's going to get to the nuts and bolts of what their relationship with him should look like. This is sort of a define the relationship talk that he's giving with them in chapter 15. And in order to define the relationship for them, he's going to give them what I think is a beautiful metaphor, a beautiful word picture, an image that they can then hold on to and carry with them as they relate to him after he physically departs from this world. The goal here is for this image or this picture that he's giving them to solidify what sort of interaction they will have with him and what sort of relationship they will have with him after he's gone. So John 15, we're going to look at verses 1 through 8 this week, and then the rest of this section in 9 through 17 we'll look at next week. But here's what we're going to see this morning. Two vital features of our relationship to Christ. Again, this passage is for the disciples in the immediate context, but obviously it has massive implications for you and I as we're reading about what Jesus said and how he defined the relationship 2,000 plus years later. So two vital features, you need to understand these features of your ongoing relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And the first one of these is you've got to understand what it is that you have with him, the nature of your relationship with Christ. Look at verse 1. This is where he lays out this controlling metaphor this controlling picture for them to carry with them in their relationship with him. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. So before we explain this, let me kind of put it in a little bit of context here. Over and over again in chapter 14 in the Gospel of John, in earlier in the book, Jesus has talked repeatedly using language of saying, I am in my Father, my Father is in me, and you are in me. He always uses this language of close association, of union, in me, in you, right? Look at chapter 14 and verse 20 to remind you of this. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. So he's used this language over and over again, and honestly, as you read it, sometimes it can sort of go over our heads because it seems rather abstract. What are you getting at by saying, I'm in you and you in me? Like, what does this look like? Well, now he uses a very concrete word picture, an image, to solidify this in our minds and to help us to visualize our relationship between Christ and ultimately with the Father as well. And that image is the vine and the vine dresser or the farmer. Now, this image that Jesus uses here, I hope, if you have been with us at all in our study of this gospel, I hope you will realize that Jesus does not just pull this image out of thin air. He's not looking at the grapes on the table or the wine that they're drinking that evening and suddenly thinking about a vine and a vine dresser. He's not pulling this image out of thin air. It comes from somewhere, and it comes from the Old Testament. This image, this picture of a vine and a vine dresser or a farmer, a vineyard owner, is used over and over and over again in the Old Testament. 
In the Old Testament, God the Father is the farmer, the vineyard owner, and Israel, the nation of Israel, is the vine or the vineyard. It kind of goes back and forth between the two. I'm going to show you a couple of passages because we could spend a lot of time this morning reading Old Testament texts that talk and use this image of the vineyard and the vineyard owner. One of the most familiar probably is Isaiah chapter 5. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it, hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge. It shall be devoured. I will break down its wall. It shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed. And briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. And so you can see the image that is used here for Israel as the vineyard and God as the vineyard owner or the vine dresser. And you can see the indictment here is that Israel has not obeyed. They've not walked with him. They've not fulfilled their purpose that he has for them. Now, another passage that I want to show you, I want you to turn to this one because it's a bit longer. It's in Psalm chapter 80, and I want to read this with you. Psalm chapter 80. Again, Jesus is not pulling this image out of thin air. He's making a point with it. And it's important that you and I understand this point so that we can understand our relationship, the nature of our relationship to him. Psalm chapter 80, let's start in verse 8. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. And here's the prayer in light of Israel's being planted by God and then turning from him and pursuing idolatry and rejecting his lordship over them. Turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see, have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. So they, the prayer here is, despite the exodus, or not the exodus, but despite the exile that God brings upon Israel after planting them in the land as his vine, as his vineyard, the prayer is that God would restore them and would rebuild his relationship with them and would make them fruitful and help them to achieve what he had planned for them. How is he going to do this? Amazingly enough, look at verse 17 in this passage. 
But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. It's an amazing passage. Jesus is not pulling this image out of thin air here. And here's the point. All over the Old Testament, when you see Israel talked about as the vineyard or the vine, and God as the farmer who has planted his vine with the goal of seeing them fulfill his purpose for them, whenever that image is used, it always is showing how Israel has failed to accomplish God's purposes. It's always talking about their idolatry, their failure to produce fruit. It's always talking about how they're going to go or they have gone into exile. They haven't done what you would expect to happen when you plant and cultivate a vine and a vineyard. What, was, what were God's purposes for Israel? All the way back in the book of Exodus, he says, I want you to be a light for the nations. I want you to mediate God's blessings to the entire world. And you do that by living in relationship with me as I dwell in your midst, by obeying my commands. But Israel failed at that over and over and over again. And so what does Jesus do? He picks up that imagery used for Israel in the Old Testament, and he inserts himself into the picture. Why? Why can he say this here? I am the true vine. Because he is the fulfillment of God's true purposes for Israel. He comes and represents the nation and obeys where Israel fails. He does what they should have done. And with the coming of Jesus, with his death and his resurrection, God has brought about a new covenant through him. Jesus now becomes the focal point and the channel of blessings to the nation through his work and through this new covenant. Let me remind you of what is promised in the new covenant that we now receive through the work of the Spirit that Israel was never able to partake of. Jeremiah 31. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. What's the promise of the new covenant? What does Jesus bring that the Old Testament ethnic Israel didn't have? Why couldn't they obey? He brings a new heart. The heart of stone is made a heart of flesh, and it's through the gift of the Holy Spirit that now they are enabled to obey him. Now we are enabled to obey him. And the result of this relationship is given in verse 2. Look there. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So, 
Put this together. Jesus comes as the fulfillment of the expectations, the responsibilities of Israel in the Old Testament. He brings about the new covenant, which results in a new heart, new desires because of the forgiveness of sins. That's where the new heart and the new desires are rooted is the realization and the recognition of forgiveness of sins. And now this new covenant gives those who are connected to Jesus the ability to obey him and to bear fruit. Now they can walk with him in new life and do exactly what God has designed them to do. And fruit becomes the key indicator of whether or not one is connected to the vine. Look again at verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Jesus is the true vine. Resurrection life is in him. And to claim to be connected to him and to have received forgiveness of sins, the spirit and new life, to to make that claim and then to not bear fruit is to deceive yourself. That's the point here. Connection to Jesus equals fruit. New life in him brings about fruit. 1 John could not make this any clearer. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. On the other hand, it says in verse 2, when you do bear fruit, when you do live according to the new life that is in you, when you do bring about the fruit that God desires for you, he will do his pruning work so that he can bring about more fruit in your life because that's the goal. Now, when you talk about God's pruning work in verse 2, that doesn't sound like the most comfortable thing in the world for a believer to undergo. But even when you think about pruning being somewhat uncomfortable It's not done out of spite. It's not done out of frustration. God's pruning work in your life is always done out of love and affection and a desire for you to produce more fruit. When you bear good fruit because you're connected to Christ, God will work on you by pruning the sin out of your life so that you can become even more fruitful and you can live according to the relationship that you now have in Christ. Now, what fits into this category of fruit? What are we talking about here when we talk about bearing fruit and being pruned so that you can bear more fruit? All sorts of things. Obviously, I think Paul gets the image of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5 from this passage. And so all of the virtues or the character qualities that he mentions, love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, all of those are what we're talking about when we talk about bearing fruit. Any sort of love and service motivated by your relationship to Christ, when you begin to reflect his patience and his grace toward others in your relationships, that's fruit. When you encounter a frustrating circumstance at work and you respond with kindness, all of those are examples of the fruit that pops up in your life because you're connected to Christ. Now, who can bear fruit like this? Who brings about this sort of fruit? Look at verse 3. 
Again, this is defining the nature of your relationship, of our relationship with Christ. So who is able to bear fruit? Verse 3, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Those who are clean are those who can bear fruit. We've heard this language before. Back in chapter 13 and verse 10, when Jesus washes the feet of the disciples, here's what he says to them. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. The not every one of you is referring to Judas there. But the disciples are clean. Now, the word back in chapter, 14, or chapter 15 here that's translated clean is very similar, interestingly enough, to the word prune in verse 2. And so, The clean branch is the branch that has heard the word of Christ, the teaching about who he is given in this gospel, and has responded to that teaching in repentance and faith, and has been initially cleansed or pruned, forgiven of their sins, has received new life, That's who can now be pruned all the more and cleansed all the more through this process of sanctification to produce more and more fruit. And that was true of the disciples here. That's what he's saying. This defines their relationship with him. They are branches that are connected to the vine. They have been cleansed of their sins, and now they are in him related to him. So what have we seen here of the nature of our relationship to Christ? He's the vine. He's the fulfillment of Israel's mission, the expectations for Israel. And life and fruit now do not come through an ethnic connection to Israel. It's not about the covenant now is not about what you're born into. Jesus is now the focal point and the centerpiece of God's plans. He's where it happens now. He's the fulfillment of the promises. He's the pathway to true life. He, through his work, brings about cleansing and forgiveness of sins with the goal of growing fruit in those who are connected to him. That's the nature of our relationship to him. And if that's true, how do we respond to this? And that's the next vital feature of our relationship with Christ. We have the nature of our relationship. He's divine, the fulfillment of the promises and the expectations, the one that brings about the new covenant that enables us to bear fruit and cleanses us from our sins. And now there is a necessary posture in our relationship. What do we do with this relationship that we have as the vine and the branches? Well, there's a way of handling ourselves and of relating to him that is now should be true of us. So let me explain it this way. We talked about the different types of relationships that you have earlier, the neighbors, the children, the coworkers. If you were to adopt a child sometime within the next couple of months, there would come a moment in time when that adoption becomes official, it's finalized, And the nature of your relationship with that child and that child's relationship with you now changes. It's totally different in that moment. 
And because that relationship has fundamentally changed, now there is a way of life that that child has to get used to and to live into, right? Now they're a part of the family. And so now they relate to you differently. Now there's a confidence that is there. Now the way they act changes because of the change of status, the nature of the relationship. So let me say it this way. The status of the relationship determines the activity of the relationship. And that's what Jesus is getting at here in verses 4 through 8. He explains that the fundamental posture of you and I as a believer in Christ has to be what it is because he's the vine and we are cleansed and we are in him. Look at the very first part of verse 4. Here's our posture. Abide in me and I in you. Now this is a command. There are only a couple of commands given in this passage, but this is a command to abide in him. The word abide has a number of synonyms for it. You can, you can translate this to stay, to dwell, to remain. It's really a pretty common word. It's used all over the place. It talks about people staying in the same house. Jesus told his disciples, when you get to such and such a city, stay in the same house. It's used another place to talk about remaining on a ship or in a ship. So it's interesting here that you have this command that is given to the branches to remain in the vine. Now, obviously, we wouldn't normally put all of the responsibility on the branch to stay connected to the vine. And I think Jesus is understanding that in defining the nature of the relationship and our posture in it when he gives us the second part of this, abide in me and I in you. There's a mutual connection and relationship that is here that determines our posture. So what's he saying here? Stay, remain, dwell in this relationship. I think what he's getting at here is he's saying, I want you to recognize this relationship that you now have with me, and I want you to continually cultivate it. I want you to go back to it. See it anew every single day recognize that you are in me and connected to me and build your life on that connection. The reality of the word picture of a vine and the branch that is connected to it is really quite simple. Let's not make this any more abstract than it really is. Look at the rest of verse 4 and verse 5. I mean, this is pretty basic, right? You know this to be true, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides or remains or dwells in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. I mean, if you have a grapevine and one of the branches gets broken off in a windstorm, or you tear that branch off and break it by hand, it will not grow grapes. Pretty straightforward. Why? Why won't it grow anything? It's no longer connected to the source of life and nourishment that it needs. It's not receiving the nutrients that it needs in order to grow fruit. It is the same way with the disciple of Jesus. 
We cannot grow fruit apart from Christ. Now, what does this actually look like? We'll get into this more next week as we go through verses 9 through 16. We'll talk about the how to abide in him. But I think this quote is helpful in helping us to understand what this looks like. This spiritual relationship, the relationship that is objectively there, that is a spiritual relationship, must be nurtured if Jesus' followers are to remain connected to their exalted Lord. And so in this quote, there's a couple things happening. First of all, part of staying connected is recognizing the relationship you have with Christ is a spiritual relationship. And then I think you need to understand how this works in the New Testament so often. I was talking about this with the youth group kids this morning. This is a fundamental feature of how to understand sanctification in the New Testament and the way the Bible teaches us to grow and to abide in Christ, okay? You've got commands to obey, yes, but anytime you have a command to obey, you have been told in that passage or close by what Christ has already done. And so you've got these statements of reality, of the way things are, of the work of Christ, and then coming off of those, you have commands to obey, If you just list out all the commands and say, okay, now obey those, that is an incredibly disheartening thing to do. But if you look at the commands and then you say, yeah, but but here's the nature of the relationship. Here's the forgiveness of sins. Here's Christ's love for you. Now you can be motivated to live into those commands. And I think that's what this is talking about. Recognize the spiritual relationship with you, have, you have with Christ and then nurture that relationship by going back to it and reminding yourself of it. And that will work itself out in fruit in your life. Staying connected to him and understanding that relationship is how you draw life and nutrients and spiritual strength from him for fruit. So how do we nurture this relationship with him? It's like almost any other relationship, time and attention. How do you grow closer to your kids? Time, attention, interaction, communication. I think all of those are the types of actions that Jesus is getting at here when he says to abide in him. Stay in the reality of the nature of the relationship. Remember who you are in Christ. Earlier this year, I read this short little book um, by this pastor. I think he's a British pastor named Rico Tice, which is a great name, by the way. It's a very strong name. Uh, In this book, Rico was talking about some daily rhythms that he has in order to abide in Christ. And one of the things he does is he has a personal catechism that he goes through every morning. It's only four questions long, and he gives these four questions, rehearses them, and then gives his answers that he's written out to these questions. And he reads and prays through these very quickly every single morning. And what this does for him is it reaffirms the reality of this relationship, right? He's connecting his mind and his heart to the vine every single day. I'm not going to read you all that he wrote for his personal catechism, although it's not that long, but I do want to read you a couple of these questions and answers. 
the first one. Rico, how does God feel about you? Answer, he is delighted with you because he is delighted with Jesus, his son, and you are united to Jesus by faith. A righteousness from God has been revealed and it has been given to you. You are a sinner and you are justified. Rico, say today what Gresham Machen said on his deathbed. I thank God for the obedience of Jesus. Your identity is in Christ, and whether others accept you or reject you today does not make you any more or less valuable or accepted or loved. Rico, why is today a great day? Answer. Because today is the day that God has planned for you. And God, and if God says it's good, then it's good. Whatever God brings into your day, the things you choose and the things you definitely wouldn't, he will work in them for your good. And your good is to become more like Jesus. So today, one way or another, whether you see it or not, you're going to grow to be more like your Savior. That's a great day. Now, this isn't the only way to remain in the reality of what Christ has done. There are lots of other ways to cultivate this relationship with him, but this is a good way. Go back to some basic truths every single morning and pray through them and remind yourself of who you are in Christ. Now, our second point here uh, on the screen is that the, there's a, necess a necessity to our posture in our relationship with Christ. Why is this necessary, right? We've talked about the posture, abide in him. You can't bear fruit without him, without staying connected to him. Why is this necessary? And that's what's explained to us in verses six through eight. There are three reasons why this is necessary. And I'm gonna, there's one in each verse and we'll go through them quite quickly here, all right? First, in verse six, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. It's necessary to abide in him and to bear fruit because of the reality of judgment. This is a real thing, that those who are not connected to the vine will one day experience and enter into judgment. Fire is often used in Scripture as a symbol of God's judgment. Now, this verse is not saying that you can get saved, be connected to the vine, and lose your salvation because you fail to abide in Christ. That's not what this verse is saying. But there are people, and the last day will reveal this, who will go into the judgment very confident in their works and their abilities and what they've done. There are people who claim to follow Christ, who attend churches, who maybe are even involved in churches. They have Christian friends, and yet they were never truly connected to the vine. And so they wither, and they don't produce fruit. And when that happens, their end is judgment because they never actually had Jesus Christ. And so there's a necessity to abiding in the vine because it proves, as we'll see later, the reality of your salvation. Second, in verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. 
Abiding in Christ encourages and gives us unlimited and real access to God through him. Right? We pray in the name of Jesus because he is our access point to the Father. Notice here that abiding means you are in God's words and you know God's words. And so when that is true of you, you pray according to his will. Because scripture is so much of what you think and it drives your perception of reality. And so when you pray, you pray according to God's will. You want the same things that he wants. And when you pray that way, he delights to give you what you ask for because it's the same thing that he wants. Now this verse would have been immensely encouraging to the disciples. Why? Because Jesus is about to leave them and depart. They've walked with him physically and here he's saying, look, Continue in my words, know the words that I've given to you, and you can still ask me for things, and I will delight to give it to you as you ask according to my will. He's telling them they're going to have direct access to him through prayer, even after he leaves. Third, verse 8. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove... There's that language we were talking about, prove to be my disciples. When you abide in Christ and you bear fruit according to your relationship with him, it proves the reality of your discipleship. And that brings glory to God. Who, when you think about a vineyard, who gets the honor and the reputation and the glory for the award-winning grapes or the wine that is produced at the vineyard? Who gets that honor and glory? The vine keeper, the farmer, the one who prunes the branches so that they produce more and better fruit. The one who patiently, day after day, works and waters and tends to the vine and the vineyard so that fruit is produced. And when that fruit is produced, he receives the honor and the glory. So we bring glory to God, but not in our own efforts. How? Only as we are connected to the vine and as we abide in him. So here's the bottom line for you this week. Let me encourage you, encourage myself in this as well. It's hard for me to read those catechisms that he gives without tearing up, obviously. Let me encourage you this week to get up every day and Lean into your relationship with Christ. Lean into it. Remember the reality of who you are in Christ, of who he is. The relationship that you have with the Father and the Son through the work of Christ. The forgiveness of sins that you have. The access to God because of Christ. Enjoy, rejoice in the reality of your cleansing That if you're in him, verse 3 is true of you. You are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Enjoy and cultivate an awareness of that reality. I mean, one of the things about that second song we sang this morning, his mercies are, are new every morning. We want to remind ourselves of that because mercy and a recognition of God's mercy and love to us is what motivates holiness in our lives. It's not seeing a big list of rules and thinking we have to obey all of those. That's a part of it, but those obedience to those rules comes as you 
Remind yourself afresh and anew every day of God's mercy and love and grace to you. And that motivates your holiness and your pursuit of him. So let's start there with the relationship that we have with Christ, connection to the vine, the forgiveness of sins, the new life in him. And then that will cause us to bear fruit as we go back to those realities. Keep your thoughts there. Stay, remain in the reality of the relationship that you have with him and you'll bear much fruit. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so, we so often forget these truths. We so often live, get caught up in all of the things that we have to accomplish throughout the day, which are important and good things. But I pray that you would just help us this week to take a step back, maybe each morning, and just remind ourselves of who we are in you, the nature of the relationship that we have. And then I pray that the reality of of who we are in you, of the forgiveness of sins, of the new heart that we've received, I pray that that would then put us in a posture of staying and remaining in you, that we would cultivate and nourish the connection that we have with you each and every day by the Spirit. And then I pray that that would slowly begin to work fruit out in our lives that we would see the love that you have for us and that we would then exhibit that love horizontally to others, that we would see your grace and your patience with us and then that we would not be so sharp and quick to respond to others, but we would be patient and kind. We want to glorify you through producing fruit, Lord, and so we pray that you would help us to stay connected so that all of this can happen. We thank you for your grace. Thank you for your goodness. It's in Christ's name we pray.